You are now listening to the people of digital marketing with your host, me, Kenny Soto. This podcast is your source for marketing strategies, tactics, and most importantly, career advice from the best digital marketers in the world. From B2B to B2C, startups to Fortune 500 companies, and everything in between, I interview experts in marketing so that we can grow to become better marketers together. If you're a marketer who wants a leg up in this space, well, guess what? You're in the right place. Thanks for tuning in. You know, you can implement that and you can make your writing a lot better. You can make yourself more persuasive. You make it, can make people like you more. So, so the first step is to understand these components. And the example I was giving you, you have to know what a clause is. So these days, people aren't so keen about grammar. But, you know, if you understand grammar, you understand how to be persuasive. If you understand how to be persuasive, that's how you make a lot of money. So understand the components read for these components and apply them in your writing. And that's a great way to become a, not just a good writer, but a good communicator and a successful person. That's a clip from our new episode, episode 92, that you're going to listen to right now from Lerang Lerouche. And I'm definitely butchering his name, but you'll hear a proper pronunciation in a little bit. Lerang is from Canada. And he is an author, speaker, and writing consultant based in Toronto. He is the author of Heterochrome, Write a Book That Matters, The Architecture of Grammar, and The End of Nonsense, which is his forthcoming edition. Lerange is a writing activist. He believes that writing is the most powerful skill in the world and that writing well isn't hard with the right mindset and approach. Now, why is a writing coach an author on the podcast? Well, a lot of us have aspirations, whether that be to start our own businesses or become a CMO one day. I'm certain that we are, we are all excuse me, thinking about potentially writing a book too. So I wanted to have an expert who's done it many times on the podcast. I've had previous authors on, in the past, but that wasn't their main profession. Whereas with Lerang, this is his main profession. So in this episode, if you haven't guessed that already, we'll be talking about how to write a book, when it's appropriate to do so, and all of the best practices that you need to know when you get started. And without further ado, let's tune in. Hi, Lerang. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. And for the audience, uh, just so that they can uh, not suffer from me butchering your name, can you tell the audience how to pronounce your full name? Yeah, so my full name is uh, Leandre Larouche. Leandre Larouche. That's the French pronunciation. Yeah, so my my American accent can't, can't <laughs> do do it justice, but I'm gonna do my best. So Leandre, before we started recording this, I gave you a background into the podcast, the audience, etc. And before diving deep into the world of writing, which you're an expert in, I wanted the audience just to get more of a background about who you are as a person, your career, and your profession. So my first question for you is, could you describe your career as a whole and what you do today? Yeah, absolutely. And I do think it's kind of a, it's kind of a funny story. Um, and it's, it's tossed with my name basically, because I grew up in Quebec, so in a small town. And so most of Quebec is, is French speaking. 
And so I grew up in French. Uh, you know, my family speaks French, don't speak English. And uh, for some reason, I was fascinated with the English language and I wanted to be a writer. But I also wanted to write in English, partly because I liked how the language sounds, but also because Quebec is, is quite small. It's 8 million people. So that's fairly small in the North American continent. And so I thought, you know, I was always kind of a capitalist and, uh, you know, entrepreneurial minded. And so I figured, well, you know, most of the market is in the English language. And so I wanted to pursue that. So I, I moved from my small town to uh, Montreal, which is uh, Quebec's big city, like the economic capital. I studied English literature and professional writing at an English speaking school called Concordia not to be confused with the ones in the US. And from there, that's where my uh, career really started because my only goal was to master the English language. And I took my degree because I figured, well, I'm gonna be reading a lot of books. So I have no choice but to get good at that language. And I'm gonna be writing a lot. And that's kind of the goal. So I figured that was the right combination for my purpose. And I was very tunnel vision about, about it. And so while in university, I was very keen on learning outside the classroom. Um, I can't say that I learned that many useful things in my degree when it comes to like my professional career. You know, reading, writing, and thinking were that like they're the big ones, but like tactically speaking, uh, there weren't many. So I worked as a writing assistant at the writing center. And that's where I got a lot of my writing education, working with people from all disciplines, writing all kinds of things and really struggling. And I did a lot of content marketing. I did a lot of copywriting. When I was a, an exchange student in England, I was kind of going broke. And I saw this ad, this guy who was running like a freelance writing course. So I took like half of the money that I had left and like bought this course. And that's how I started freelance writing. And that got me into content marketing, started kind of building my personal brand on LinkedIn and everything evolved from there. Now, on the side, I'd always been a fiction uh, writer, and I started writing some nonfiction as well. So when I was still in university, I published my first book that was a novel in French. And after that, I published a couple, a couple more. So everything I've been doing has been centered around writing and basically the timeless fundamentals of writing, whether it be copywriting or blogging or book writing. You could say my career has been basically obsessively focused on the craft of writing at all levels and how writing shapes the way that you think and how writing makes you more successful. Another thing that I did in university, I worked for a guy that was essentially helping people, a lot of the time immigrants, get jobs through a resume distribution service. And I had to basically edit the resumes and ghostwrite a cover letter based on their resumes and based on a brief conversation with them. So over like six months, I, I think I wrote like six or 700 uh, cover letters uh, for people. And so since then, I've always helped my friends and, you know, sometimes people uh, hire me. I, I don't really, I don't really do it for like people that I don't know, but like every once in a while, I'll do like a cover letter and like the art of persuasion lives in the, in the craft of writing. So Essentially, it's always been it's always been focused on that craft. It's always been focused on these fundamentals of writing and what makes for good communication. So, yeah, so that's that's my career in a in a nutshell. 
And as far as present day is concerned, can you describe your business and the services you currently provide? Yeah. So right now I do writing coaching. Um, so I help people write and publish books, mostly entrepreneurs. I also uh, provide training and resources both to individuals and organizations and schools. I am working with a college in the Philippines, uh, providing them with textbooks that I wrote on writing related topics, as well as uh, consulting on how to use these textbooks in their, in their teaching. And um, so, yeah, it's a, lot of, it's a lot of coaching, consulting, and training, both for individuals and uh, organizations. In the podcast, in the past, we've had several authors, and for some reason, it's escaped me to ask them this question that I'm going to ask you now. And I think you're the best person to ask, so I'm glad that I haven't been able to ask it. Should anyone write a book? When do you know if a book is an appropriate thing that you should start? Yeah, so I think, so yes and no. I think the real question is, should anyone publish a book? There are books that I have written that I have not published. And so here's the thing, writing a book is sort of the ultimate writing exercise. It doesn't get harder than that. The only thing that's harder is writing a coherent body of work. Like if you're Plato or Aristotle, it's like you have like a collection of books. Um, but other than that, the book is the, the longest, most complex thing you can write. It requires structure and unity. You need clarity. You need confidence. You need to be skilled at writing. So in that sense, yes, because if you write the book, if you write the book for yourself and you do it right, you're going to be a way better writer. I mean, I would say anybody should write, but if you want to catapult your writing skills, write a book. I mean, the first thing that I ever wrote was a book and I, I wrote a lot of other things in between, but it was the book that helped me improve my writing skills the most. Now, I think, you know, should you publish a book? I think it broadly depends. Um, there are different types of books. If you're, an, if you're an entrepreneur, I think, especially in a, in a knowledge space, if you will, like a, a coach or a consultant, there's no denying that it gives a lot of authority. Uh, it gives you a lot of self-confidence as well. In that sense, I think it's a no-brainer. But the caveat is it has to be an actually good book. And there are two types of books. There are books that essentially reframe things that already exist. And there are books that break paradigms, basically, that really innovate. And um, it's pretty rare to have an idea that completely breaks a paradigm. Uh, there's one book that I'm writing that I would argue actually breaks a paradigm. Uh, the other ones are mostly reframing things. And so if you write a book that reframes things, it's not completely original, but there's a lot of value in that, both for you and for your readers, because you're, the book that you write, even if it's very similar to other books, the way you write it is going to appeal to a certain segment of the, of the market. And so that's great. They can get the information from you as opposed to other people that they don't necessarily resonate with. And for you, it's great because it allows you to do the synthesis of everything that you know, really put that in application and improve your communication skills. I would say, 
yes, everyone should publish a book, but one condition I would say. So I think of, I think of a person's journey as uh, in three steps. So there's the discovery, there's mastery, and there's communication slash leadership. A lot of people are still in the discovery mode, and some people are not even in the discovery uh, mode, which is they're not even looking for their purpose. Uh, but a lot of people are, look, are looking for their purpose. They're kind of exploring different fields and disciplines. They're trying to find what they actually like. And once you actually like something, that's something you can spend a lot of time mastering. And you know the 10,000 hour rule, uh, I think it's pretty true. And so you have to find something that you really like that you can actually master. And so when you're mastering your craft, I think it starts making sense to write a book and that will help you master it even more because anything you are learning, if you teach it, you're gonna get better at it. And so from the mastery phase, it starts making sense to write a book. I would argue that at the mastery level, it, it, it makes sense. Now at the communication level, it absolutely makes sense. In fact, it's almost required and I, I see a lot of people, they master something, they're in the mass, they, they've passed that, but they're not going into the communication phase, which I think is really the key to getting to that next level. And um, I would say, you know, if you're still in the discovery phase or you're not even in the discovery phase, it doesn't make sense to write and publish a book. It still makes sense to write though. And writing can help you discover your purpose because you learn things and you apply them, you re-articulate them, you do a synthesis of different things that can actually help you discover your purpose. Um, but a book is probably not the best outlet to do that. It makes sense in mastery and communication. As a quick follow-up, would you say anyone who's in the discovery phase, they're probably better off doing blogging? Yeah, I would say so. Um, I mean, when you're in discovery mode, uh, you should obviously read a lot. There's, um, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Russell Brunson. He has his uh, trilogy, uh, trilogy of books, the Secrets Trilogy. And in one of them, uh, Expert Secrets, he talks about if you're not an expert already, the way that you can become an expert and build an audience is by actually documenting your journey. And so you learn and you document your learning journey and that will eventually make you an expert. I don't know that I quite agree that you know, doing that documentation actually makes you an expert, but I definitely agree with him that it's a great way to discover what you like. It's a great way to master something. So I would definitely encourage people to blog about their learning at the very least to write and journal about the things, to note down things and to write for themselves and even better if they publish it somewhere on the internet. And correct me if I'm wrong, at least a certain number of posts that they write can also be the inspiration for a future book. Absolutely. Yeah. I think most people at some point in their career, they've already posted enough content that you can look at it, see the unity and make a book out of that. Let's dive into writing a book. Obviously there's best practices out there, but I want to start off with things you've seen that you disagree with. Are there any quote unquote best practices that you see floating around that you don't agree with? 
Well, I mean, there is a um, there is a trend, especially in the internet marketing space. Um, you know that sort of completely disemphasizes good writing. I don't agree with that. I think you know I, I wouldn't. I don't think they could really call it a best practice. I think a lot of people encourage people to do transcription, so to like talk out loud and then get the thing edited, and. Um, you know, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. You can do it if, if your goal is to write and publish a book for authority as soon as possible and you already have a large audience that will buy it no matter what. I think that's probably a good idea. If you really want to reap the benefits of writing a book, you're not going to get them from talking out loud because you're, there's a different voice that you have when you're speaking versus when you're when you're writing and good writing is good editing. And so sure you can send your transcription to you know, somebody on Fiverr, but at the end of the day won't be the same as the, the kind of book that you, that you find at the bookstore essentially. So that's kind of a trend I don't necessarily agree with. I'm not saying that people shouldn't do it. There might be a day when I do it myself. I think it can be valuable, but I think I guess the idea that the writing doesn't matter is something that I don't agree because you should create an experience for readers and the book that you write is an opportunity for you to connect. If it's a, if it's a book that helps your authority, well, that book is an opportunity for you to, co to connect with your potential readers and that comes through voice and style. And so you can achieve some of that through transcription, but there's a level of polishing that you're not going to be able to get uh, if you take that approach. So, yeah. So the idea that the writing doesn't matter, that the, you know, a lot of uh, book coaches say like, well, you know, grammar doesn't matter and, and so on. I don't quite agree with that. I, I can understand why for some people it's not really a priority. Yeah, I have, a, I have a bit of a different approach. I'm a bit more of the old school and I tend to work more with people that, want to create something substantial and that's kind of legacy building for them, not just like a, a tool that they want in the immediate. Let's assume in this scenario that I'm a future client of yours. I have an idea for a book that I want to create. I have no idea how to start. What advice do you have? I think the fundamental mistake that we make when it comes to writing is we're expecting that we need to start with the answers, whereas we really need to be starting with the questions. And um, you have a lot of questions that you know you could be answering or else you wouldn't be thinking of writing a book. So instead of trying to have answers and put a bunch of answers together and piece them together in some sort of Frankenstein, which is what a lot of people do when they try to write a book on their own without any guidance, my encouragement would be to actually think about the one big question that you seek to answer and then divide that into other questions and then yet more questions and by having the questions you know what to say instinctively and so it's a lot easier and it's actually a lot more humble to start with the questions rather than to start with the answers the questions will actually guide your thought process in the right direction and uh, the, you know starting with the answers will just take you everywhere what are the right habits to form when actually writing a book? 
Yeah, so my students often ask my routine or like when I write and how long I write. And frankly, I don't have any sort of like set routine. I think it all comes from knowing you have to do this and that this is important. And that kind of the time for writing appears because you say no to other things and you say yes to writing. I don't really have a, um, a solid answer to that, but I will say that you know, when the timing is right, when the project is right and you need to do writing, it's like, and I'm an entrepreneur myself and I work with entrepreneurs and like everything's always breaking in your business every single day. Like there's always like some fire to, to you know, take care of. But at the end of the day, it's like what matters is that you actually make the time and that whatever time left, you use it for writing. And uh, you have to think, you have to think about it holistically in the sense that your writing is competing with all the other things you could do both in your business and in your personal life. And so you have to prioritize. I will say though, that if you are a new writer, if you are starting, you're building your practice, writing every day is a must, but your emails that you write, they also count as long as you're conscious so when people ask me, how do I improve my writing? I tell them, you have to learn. I call this the architecture of writing. That's the name of my methodology, but I guess we can just call it the components of writing. Once you know these, you can be conscious of whenever you read and write. And so you can read for content. Like when you, when you open an email, you read it for content, you understand it, you reply to it, but you can also read it for form and for understanding. And so, for example, next time you get an email, you could look at it and analyze how the sentences and how the words are lined up together and what, what effect it has on you. Now, chances are the person who wrote the email didn't put conscious thought into it. So it's not like we can really hold that person accountable for the effect, but the intention doesn't really matter. What matters is the consequence. I'll give you an example our brains understand words literally. So if I tell you like, don't think about an elephant, you're gonna think of an elephant. That's because the elephant is the content word. It's what creates the image. The don't think, well, the think is the verb, but the don't, that's just a function, a function word. So it just shows a relationship between the words. So it doesn't create image. So whatever content words or image words, we put in a sentence, that's what the brain goes to. So if I, if you, if you say you're welcome, uh, if you say thank you to me and I say no problem, then your brain goes to the word problem. That's not a good, you know, that's not a good word. Like problem is negative. If I say it's my pleasure, your brain thinks pleasure. And, or if I say you're welcome, you think of welcome. Um, if I, if you ask, how are you? I say, oh, I'm good. Or I'm fine. It's like, eh. If I say, oh, I'm fantastic, your brain goes to fantastic. And, um, you know, this works at a, at a much larger scale as well. I'll give you an example. If I'm writing a business apology letter to a customer and I say, oh, my, I'm sorry that my staff member called you a liar, even though that's what happened, I don't want to write that because it takes my customer back to that interaction. And that word liar is offensive to the customer. So what I'll say instead is, I'll say, I'm sorry that my staff member implied you weren't saying the truth. I'm saying the same thing, but now the brain goes to the word truth 
that's a much more positive word. And so um, I actually did that uh, yesterday. I replied to an email that I was supposed to reply like five days prior. And I said, I was going to write, I'm sorry that I, I, I'm sorry for taking so long to reply, or I'm sorry for the delay in replying. I, it somehow got lost. But like now I've got sorry, late, lost. These are all negative words. So instead, what I did is I deleted this whole thing and I wrote, I said, I wrote, thank you for your patience. I typically respond much faster. Um, I somehow didn't see that email until now. And so that's all positive words instead of negative. So when that person sees my email, even if she's like not happy that um, I took like three days more than I was supposed to, like her brain goes to like positive things. So she's not going to be as upset. And say I did that again, instead of saying like, even if she's, I didn't say if she, even if she's pissed, I say, even if she's not happy. So you, you can control the words and um, I, I kind of I kind of digress here, but essentially once you understand these kinds of details, you can notice them and you can reflect on how they make you feel as a reader and you can start implementing that. And from there it compounds. You know, I could give you countless examples with the sentence structure where you put each part of the sentence will have an impact. I'll give you another really quick example that has to do with marketing. In a sentence, you have clauses, right? You have different parts of the sentence. And so I saw on, a, on an Instagram post not long ago, I said, you, it said, you really don't want to miss this if you seek financial independence. Now, the first thing that I see is you really don't want to miss this, which is a salesy pitch. I don't even know yet what you're offering. So I don't even know if I don't want to miss this. I probably want to miss this because you sound like you're wanting to sell me something. If you said instead, if you're seeking financial independence, you really don't want to miss this. Well, if I'm seeking financial independence, sounds fair enough. I probably like, nah, I don't want to miss this. Like, yeah, sign me up. But, um, you know, there's a big difference between like putting the information first and last. And there's countless details like that, that once you start noticing, you know, you can implement that and you can make your writing a lot better. You can make yourself more persuasive. You make it, can make people like you more. So, so the first step is to understand these components. And the example I was giving you, you have to know what a clause is. So these days people aren't so keen about grammar, but you know, if you understand grammar, you understand how to be persuasive. If you understand how to be persuasive, that's how you make a lot of money. So understand the components, read for these components and apply them in your writing. And that's a great way to become a, not just a good writer, but a good communicator and a successful person. When the book is still in draft form, when do you actually go out either on behalf of yourself or on the behalf of a client to source for feedback? Yeah, so I would, I would do it as early as I can, especially if you're writing a book that is heavily geared towards um, you know, solving a problem for readers because you want to make sure that you're clear. You want to make sure that you're compelling. And so you want to get that feedback as early as possible. You could do a brief outline, send it to people, ask them, you know, do you 
think that's what's helpful to you to solve this problem. I think at various stages, you can get that feedback. Once you have a couple of chapter, you can get people's feedback to see if you're in the right direction. Once you have a first draft, obviously you need to start getting feedback to start revision. And obviously not everybody's feedback is equal. So you have to keep that in mind. But yeah, I think once you have a couple of chapters in and once you have a, a first draft, that's that's a good time to start getting getting feedback. I know you talked about audio transcript being one kind of trend that you don't agree with, but people do use ghostwriters. Are mm-hmm. ghostwriters a recommendation that you would approve? And if so, how do you evaluate a ghostwriter? Yeah, so the I, I've done some ghostwriting myself. Um, so there, there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with ghostwriting. Like I said earlier about the transcripts, for me personally, like my philosophy, it's not so aligned with it, but I don't, you know, it's okay. Depends. It depends on everybody. On ghostwriting, what's really difficult is to find somebody who can actually write in your voice. That's the hardest thing. Oftentimes what ghostwriters will do is they will interview you and they will take your answers and use those answers and sort of expand them. When you evaluate a ghostwriter, you want to make sure that their voice and their style is aligned with yours in a sense that, you know, if you're a um, inf- very informal person and they're like a grammar Nazi, that's probably not going to go well, not because they're going to make the grammar perfect. That's kind of like a given that like you want like the punctuation to be in the right place, but they're going to be like, they're going to write, they're going to write in a probably more formal way. And so if that's not your style, then that's not going to work. I think for a ghostwriter, you want to have someone who's like-minded, perhaps even somebody who's your target audience in some sense. I think that's useful. A lot of a lot of clients have hired me as a writing coach because they figure in one way or another, I'm the kind of person that they would want to write for. So my feedback at a personal level is also useful. I think you have to look at what they've written before. I think if you can do a sort of like trial of sorts, um, if you want to like test the writing, like you pay them for their time and you look at like how they would tr- like transcribe your, your answers in a, in a book format, I think that can help as well. Um, it's tough. I don't necessarily, so here's, here's how I do it with clients. It's essentially a hybrid between ghostwriting and coaching. I figure out, I help them build the book, the structure, and then I do a long form interview with them, not to write the book for them, but to find which questions they need to answer. Then I give them the list of all the questions that they need to answer, and then they can write it out. If they want to speak it out, you know, I think that's not optimal, but I'm going to let them. So, and then we can polish later, but I highly encourage them to write it themselves. And so it's their words, it's their written voice, not their spoken voice. And then they send it to me and then I polish it and I make it sound more like the written version of them. So I sort of like look at the patterns, double down on these patterns, make it grammatically correct, 
and that that creates their their manuscript. So that's that's how I proceed with clients. I found that to be the most effective way. Uh, it's a it's a nice balance between, well, not doing too much work as a as a ghostwriter because you can only work with so many people as a ghostwriter, and also teaching them something in the process and getting them to reap the benefits of writing the book and giving them the satisfaction of having written it themselves, um, especially if they do it on the keyboard as opposed to speaking into a microphone. So that's that's how I proceed. I, that's my preferred way. I mean, uh, clients like it as well. So uh, that's that's my method. Two more questions. Self-publish versus publisher. Yeah, well, the difference is becoming less and less uh, if we're if we're being real here. A lot of the time, the publisher will still want you to do a lot of the marketing. Really the benefit of the traditional publisher is that you don't have to do any of the post writing work, which has a lot of benefits, but you're also collecting a very minimal percentage of the royalties. And um, they will get you into bookstores really easily. You can get your book into bookstores um, as a self-published author, but you gotta get a distribution deal. And uh, bookstores are kind of picky with what books, I mean, there are millions of books. So you got to give them a reason why, why, you know, get your book and it actually has to sell, which a lot of, which a lot of books don't sell, even the traditionally published books, like literally don't sell. Um, the way the traditional publishers work is that out of five books that they publish, one will be a home run. They'll probably lose money on all four others, but then they'll recoup all their money on the fifth one. And it's kind of like, there's no real way to predict like which one's going to be a bestseller. There are variables that factor, you know, the audience, the topic, the timing, uh, the marketing budget, uh, the, the PR. But at the end of the day, um, you know, there's no like bulletproof, like magic formula for like a real like New York Times bestseller because making the Amazon list is a, is a completely different story. Now, if you're going to self-publish, you have to be ready to do the marketing. Uh, if you want to sell books, um, you probably have to do the marketing as well if you're going to go the traditionally published route. But the publisher will put marketing resources. They will put a team at your disposal to do a lot of the work. And you'll have that extra level of authority, especially if you're uh, working with um a big name publisher like Penguin or HarperCollins, uh, any of these big publishing companies. So I think it depends if you don't want to do a lot of the work and your book is going to sell so much that you're still going to make a good amount of money off the minimal percentage. Yeah, I think it makes sense. If it's a very sort of like culture changing book and it would really benefit from like TV and like radio attention, um, I would say it also makes sense, but even, even people that could traditionally publish sometimes decide to go the self-published route. So it really depends. There's the audience as well. The bigger your audience, the easier, the easier it is to sell your book to a publisher, but then you have to factor in all the other things that we just talked about. So really depends. I would say like my advice would be to talk to somebody like a consultant that could 
basically help you figure out what's the right move when it comes to self-publishing versus traditional publishing in your specific situation. My last question is hypothetical, Laurent. If you had access to a time machine and you can go back into the past knowing everything you know, about like 10 years, how would you accelerate the speed of your career? Oh, I mean, I would go, so if I could go back 10 years, I would create content on social media like ahead of the curve because every social media platform, you know, the algorithm changes over time. And so there was a, there was a window of time when if you got on LinkedIn, now you have like half a million followers just because of how it boosted engagement. I wish you would let me go back 20 years ago though, because I would buy all the domains. I would, I would buy a lot of internet real estate. I would just buy like all the writing stuff, all the writing domains and uh, completely dominate that niche. But uh, no, seriously, like 10 years ago, yeah, I would go back to social media. I would start creating content online, like on social media a lot earlier. I would fully leverage the power of each social media platform. And um, yeah, I mean, at the same time, it's funny you ask that because I never really thought about that. And the reason I haven't really thought about that is I guess it also depends. Do you let me go back with my skills or just the knowledge? Because, you know, 10 years ago, I didn't have the skills. So I probably wouldn't have put myself out there as much. So I think it's, you know, you, you, you have to learn the skill before you do that. So, but anyway, that's, that's what I would do. I would, I would create content on social media platform in a very conscious way. Because I could basically, yeah, I would be more, I would be more conscious, and I would be more of an early adopter to these social media platforms. If anyone's listening and hasn't started TikTok, that's your push to start. Now, yeah. later on, if anyone wanted to say hello, where can they find you online? Yeah, they can find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. Um, yeah, they can also visit my website, uh, leandrelarouche.net. That's my personal website. Uh, they can also visit my business website, which is triviumwriting.com. And uh, yeah, probably the best way to say hello to me is on LinkedIn. Perfect, Laurent. Thank you for your time today. And thank you to you, the listener, for listening to another episode of the People Digital Marketing Podcast. And as always, I hope you have a great week. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. The next guest that I will have on the show is Mark Stoos. Mark Stoos is the CEO of Proof Analytics, and he also used to be the CMO of Aerospace at Honeywell. This conversation that you'll hear in the next episode was really great, mainly because he talks about the importance of understanding business and how marketing has implications on all aspects of a business, primarily revenue growth. So if you're interested in learning more about how a CEO and former CMO thinks about marketing and how you can apply those thoughts to your career, definitely subscribe if you haven't done so already. And I look forward to seeing you during the next interview. Have a good day.
Hey, thanks again for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to submit a rating and leave a review on your podcasting app. Reviews like this help to grow this podcast and get it to more people like yourself, people who want to grow in their marketing careers. If you want to say hello, you can find me on any social media platform by simply searching Kenny Soto. I look forward to hearing from you soon. And as always, let's keep growing together.